Welcome to the fifth quarter. Conversations beyond the X and O's with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Join the journey as they learn from coaches, authors, military leaders, successful entrepreneurs, business people, and motivators. Joining us today on the fifth quarter, Conversations Beyond the X's and O's is another two-time two-time guest, Jeff. That we have another second timer here, and that is Matt Brown, our, our resident uh, college football and college sports expert. Uh, great podcast with him uh, last year uh, when we had a chance to first meet him and and talk about college football and his book. Um, Jeff, I, I kind of feel like that meme. I don't know if you've seen this one with Howard Cosell, and he's got Bruce Jenner and OJ Simpson. You know, standing next to him, and it goes, I'm Howard Cosell, and I'm seeing the future, and you can't believe the blank. I kind of feel like that that's where we're at now with all the things that have happened since Matt's come on in college football. So, you know, I think we just kind of start with those and just take it wherever we go. Yeah, it's like the crystal ball, the eight ball, Nostradamus. uh, We're going to just fire away some questions that – you and I have, our listeners have, and uh, just there's nobody better connected, more wired, honest, and uh, than Matt. We just love this. It's going to be a great night. Uh, th- thanks for having me, guys. That is uh, not the the intro that I, I typically typically get on any of these. I I, I tell everybody, look, if, if I was really good at telling the future, my newsletter would cost a hell of a lot more than eight bucks. So I will I will do my very best. But but friends, you you know if if that's what you're if that's what you're looking for here, you know this podcast will be worth what you paid for it. Well, let's start with realignment. Obviously, that has been the the, the biggest one of all. Your thoughts, I mean, obviously the shockwaves in the SEC, you know, with Texas and Oklahoma, and then, of course, the bigger probably shockwave afterward is the the USC-UCLA news. But uh, just kind of give us your analysis and thoughts on it. Yeah, I I think I would agree that the the California schools defecting was more surprising to me. This was – I was not – completely shocked that you USC would, would, would test the free agency market, so to speak. You know, this, this was something that was kind of whispered about for the last two years. The, the timing was a little bit surprising and UCLA being able to extract, uh, you know, extract themselves from Cal uh, without, you know, burning things down with their regents was uh, a surprise. Although it does seem like there's going to be some adversarial hearings about that. Not enough to prevent the deal, but enough to certainly make UCLA know where they stand within the California governor's office. Um, it, it's hard to look. I mean, there's what I think about it varies so much depending on what you're on, on from whose perspective we're in, we're analyzing it. From a TV perspective, it's outstanding. Um, the Big Ten is going to make a lot more money. It's going to be great for Fox. It's going to be great for CBS and NBC to you know have the Big Ten on uh, network television across three different windows. And if you are a very casual sports fan and you like what I call helmet games where you don't really totally know who's playing, but you recognize the brands and that's a big deal. And you know what the UCLA and USC helmets are a big deal. And you see those guys play Nebraska and Ohio State, Penn State, and everything. That's that's very positive. Um, if you are an athlete for one of the Los Angeles schools, I think this sucks. Um, even though USC and UCLA are likely going to make enough money to charter almost everything, chartering a flight doesn't mean that you, you built a Hyperloop. Like Piscataway, New Jersey is still four hours plus just over the air to say nothing of the transportation from the airport to your hotel room, 
to say nothing about any connecting flights if you don't get a chance to charter. And that's time you miss from class. And more importantly, that's time where you now you move through three different time zones or you move to two different time zones, which impacts your ability to perform athletically. And the football team and the basketball teams are going to have a little bit more leeway in those travel accommodations. But if you're a soccer player or a softball athlete or somebody else, there's no way around it. Like your life gets harder and you will get exactly $0 more and potentially a worse athletic experience. And I think if you're a fan, I, I, most of the, I live in big 10 country and I talk to a lot of people like in those departments and fans. It's rare that I find somebody who's really excited about this. And it isn't because I don't like UCLA or, or USC. Like you can recognize those are strong brands, but part of the fun of college sports um, is you can trash talk people uh, in your immediate community. Like here in Chicago, uh, which is the, uh, the cultural headquarters of the Midwest. I know I can go to church or I can go to an office or in my neighborhood and there's going to be an Illinois fan. There's going to be a Michigan fan. There's going to be people. If they either went to those schools, they moved here from Iowa, they moved here from Michigan, and that's that's part of my world, right? Just like if you think of the other really passionate rivalries in college athletics, the Egg Bowl, the Holy War, the War on I-4, these, these other places, it's because you are mingled with those folks on every other facet of your social life. Guys, I don't know a single person that went to USC in like my day-to-day life. Uh, I know some people on the internet, like my, my colleague, Brian Fisher, who I do my podcast with, went to USC, but he lives a thousand miles away from me. And, and when Ohio State you know, throws UCLA basketball in the dumpster, I'm not going to have people in my life the same way that I will if it was Michigan State. And I think when that happens, everybody loses. So, you know, yeah, it's, I guess it's cool for the broadcasters. Yes, I'm going to watch Michigan USC uh, in, in, in the regular season. But boy, it has a, it has a lot of drawbacks, and we haven't even gotten to what this means for Wazoo or for a lot of the collateral damage that comes from this kind of consolidation. You know, that was actually my my two next questions. Was actually number one, what happens to the rest of the Pac-10? But number two, you talked about some the minor sports. I mean, with this with this shift, and and again, the travel budgets, the requirements to make to to make a a, a schedule for the conference are, are some sports at risk of being cut or eliminated because. The money's not there. I don't know if anybody's going to be cut exactly, but it it does really transform the experience. And a lot of this depends on the sport, right? Like for volleyball, for example, um, the Big Ten, top to bottom, is the best women's volleyball conference in the country. You know, they, they just had their their their, their sports specific media day. I was that was there in downtown Chicago. The national champion, defending national champs in that conference, the runner-up is in that conference, and you're going to probably send seven teams to the NCAA tournament most years. UCLA and USC are historically very strong programs, so the, um, you know the quality of play is becomes much better. If you are a coach at Rutgers um, or Indiana or like a rebuilding program, like this bleeping sucks. You know, just like if you're a rebuilding SEC program and they add Oklahoma, well, now getting to 500 is going to be much harder. But that, I mean, you look at that and think, okay, like you can sell that to UCLA, if, you know, or a volleyball player. You now get to play against the best. In other sports, that's not the case. Like I say this with love as a son in the Midwest, Big Ten baseball sucks. It's not a power conference league. It is not a top, often in the RPI, not even the top seven conference. So if you are a USC, which is a historically almost as blue blood as it comes in college baseball. And now you realize, hey, you might have to play half your regular season when it's 47 degrees and we're, everyone's going to have an RPI below 80 when you're used to competing for 
you know, maybe hosting a super regional, that's that's a gigantic change. The the sponsored sports are different. Some of the other places where the Big Ten culturally places a huge importance, wrestling, hockey, men's lacrosse, they don't sponsor any of those sports. So you either spend some money and add to that portfolio or you recognize that many of the non-football basketball programs um, will be hurt by this. And that's something that I can't speak to USC as much, but that matters a lot to UCLA. And you understand the financial reasons why you do it, but um, I would not want to be in the room uh, for some of those programs where you have to explain what's happening and what, what, what that means for you. All right, let's stay on. I don't know what it's called, the Pac-8, Pac-6. When we get off the phone, it may be the Pac-2. But let's talk Phil Knight and Oregon. So you have a big brand. You have Nike. How much influence is he having calling around trying to get Oregon to go somewhere or bring people in? Is Phil Knight picking up the phone, reaching out to people? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely picking up the phone. And in most cases, a extremely wealthy booster would have very little impact on a realignment decision. Um, this is, is it would be one of the few examples because he's not just one rich guy, right? He's one rich guy that is the head of one of the biggest you know, corporations that's involved in athletic departments and can shift apparel contracts and help shift recruiting. You know, j- just like I would imagine if the head of Learfield uh, IMG was a mega booster for Arizona. And if that person wanted to make some phone calls, yes, they, w- they would at least listen. Can Phil Knight unilaterally, you know, post Oregon into the big 10? No, I, I, I don't think so. Because while yes, there's a big athletic brand and a gigantic booster and very nice facilities, uh, you know, Phil Knight can't change Oregon's television market. Phil Knight can't change the fact that Oregon football was mostly invented in like 1993 it doesn't and doesn't have the same kind of institutional inertia that some of the other programs do. Can't change where it's located time zone wise. Can't change its uh, graduate school research profile. These things that are important here. I don't think that Oregon is going to be left homeless, but they're not completely in charge of their own destiny the way that they might have been, say, five or six months ago. You want to have a guy like Phil Knight in your corner, and 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 to be fair, Phil Knight also graduate alumnus of Stanford. And somebody who donates a ton of money to several other West Coast athletic departments. He's not just an Oregon guy, but he alone is not sufficient to get Oregon into the Big Ten. Otherwise, Oregon would be in the Big Ten right now. Um, and, and to the best of my knowledge, he has attempted to um, communicate Oregon's interest in being in a, a high-profile, perhaps more stable conference. Okay, who's the best brand of cereal? If we're looking at the shelf... With the remaining Pac-10, who's the best brand that you would want? So this is a tough question because who you'd want depends a little bit on the conference. Because you know, it, 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 this is a weird situation where different schools will bring different value to different people. And I'll give you an example with Stanford. Uh, Stanford is uh, as a, as across its entire athletic department one of the most successful in NCAA history. A perennial, a elite. Um, uh, the director's cup finisher, you know, has more NCAA championships than almost anybody football and men's basketball have taken a step back a little bit, but women's basketball powerhouse baseball powerhouse, excellent at many programs. Also, um, it goes without saying 
completely elite academic institution at the undergraduate graduate research level. Stanford's endowment is big enough that if they liquidated it, they could just buy the, the rest of the PAC 10, like real estate assets and everything, right? This is a, this is the, the, the GDP of a, of a developing country essentially in, in one university, but Stanford has almost no fans. I'm not saying that to be mean people that are connected to Stanford is not a place that generates a lot of sidewalk community and they're in, in, in Palo Alto and the sidewalk community all got priced out of college sports anyway, not a gigantic enrollment and not a, a huge television boost. If you're the big 12, Stanford is not as valuable an asset to you as it is the big 10 who cares much more about graduate research profile and also is trying to woo Notre Dame who has an annual rivalry with Stanford. So I would say, you know, if, if we're, if I'm, if I'm Kevin Warren and I'm shopping in the cereal aisle and I think that Stanford is, palp is is easier to sell to my presidents and easier to sell to Notre Dame, well, that's very valuable. If I'm the Big 12 that is trying to, to sell a completely different product to their television uh, part, partners and to other university presidents, I would honestly look at Utah or Arizona State or Colorado as more valuable. And that's the way those conversations have gone. It is a, a strange situation now where I think you have 10 schools that are all strong institutions and valuable and good at a bunch of different things, but find themselves in, in a strange position where their value, absolute value is dependent a lot on fit and on what other things happen, um, which is not how Washington and Oregon and Cal are historically used to operating. You use the words president and academics in the same sentence. But can a president honestly go in front of a camera and ever use the word student-athlete again? Because this is all driven by the dollar. You talked about the time zone for the softball team, and it's yeah. different for football and probably the two basketballs. But can they still hide behind the term student-athlete? I mean, in my personal opinion, that ship sailed like six years ago. Um, whatever, you know, the, what I, I think it was, it was ridiculous for the, for big 10 presidents to get up in front of cameras and talk about, no, we added Rutgers because we love their research profile. When you and I, and God knew it was because they wanted to get you know, carriage fees for BTN in the tri-state area and make a gajillion dollars. So if you're able to do that and cynical reporters like me can say, that's ridiculous. Come on. But nobody else really holds them accountable, and or and quite frankly, I'm not sure anybody else really can. Then they can say the same thing. And and the, the, one of the things that's kind of strange about the Big Ten, which is different from most other conferences, is that Big Ten, honest to God, leans into that Big Ten affiliation as a really important academic institutional marker. Like when you are a faculty member and you are being recruited to teach chemistry at the University of Wisconsin. They will remind you, you are, we are a Big Ten school, and our peers are Big Ten institutions. And now this is, this is more proof that we are a peer to UCLA, just like we are a peer to Michigan and Illinois. Nobody does this in the Big 12 because nobody cares um, that you play baseball with Cincinnati and UCF and Texas Tech. And a lot of those schools really don't share a whole lot in common. Um, I know BYU pretty well, and I know West Virginia pretty well. Those are not similar institutions. <laughs> They're not recruiting similar people. They don't are not. There's there's not a whole lot in common other than sports. That's less the case in the Big Ten. So yeah, of course this is ridiculous. Like there, there's no measure of academic achievement being advanced 
by shipping kids from Nebraska to go play at Rutgers and in two weeks go play in Los Angeles. But who's going to stop them? Nobody, really. So when I was in the Big East, the American, we had the thought of, hey, Notre Dame, and the ACC could say, hey, Notre Dame, either your football is all in or not, because if they're not affiliated with a conference, football will survive, maybe the basketballs, but their Olympic sports and things like that, they could never survive. How come no one's ever told Notre Dame, you're all in or you're all out? I think part of it is because the ACC recognizes that Notre Dame is a valuable asset for these other sports, and they wouldn't want to let them walk, especially if that meant that they pushed them into the arms of a rival conference, given how uh, powerful they are. Um, you know, maybe we could look back and say, hey, maybe the ACC had a little bit more leverage during the COVID year and they should have pushed something. But Notre Dame's administration has been uncommonly um, transparent about this, I think, when they've said, we're not independent to maximize revenue. If the most important thing for us was to make as much money as possible, we'd be in the Big Ten. Where they would have joined the Big Ten six months ago. They would join the Big Ten today, and they would join the, the Big Ten six months from now. That would still make them more money than being independent. They view being independent as an important institutional uh, marker, part of their identity. Part of the reason Notre Dame, the university, is the school that it is today was because the Big Ten was so racist in 1920 and kind of blackballed them and made them play all over the country and made them try to you know, become the official Catholic university of white-collar uh, East Coast people, which has helped make the school what it is. So the only reason you give up that part of your identity is because you feel like you no longer have playoff or championship access. And I'm not sure the ACC, or quite frankly, any league, you know, in, in outside of maybe a month ago had the leverage to force them um, to change that. Now, I don't know what the college football playoffs going to look like in, in three years, you guys. Uh, the idea that it's going to be the same 12 team model that was proposed last year. I don't think we can safely assume that. So could we reach a world where the playoff changes so much that Notre Dame feels like they have to join a league? Yeah, I, I think that's possible. And that's certainly something Kevin Warren and the big 10 would like, but I don't know if anybody had the leverage to, to force the issue um, because leaving $10 million on the table wouldn't have been enough. All right. So here's my two parter within three years is Notre Dame in a conference and which one, and did it surprise you knowing Notre Dame's history, blue collar, white Catholic school that they went and hired coach Freeman? Uh, I'll answer the second one first. I'm not surprised because um, I think Notre Dame's school realizes here, one, Catholicism in this country is changing. Um, the, the uh, what, you know, I, I recognize this here in the northwest side of Chicago, you know, where my neighborhood in the 1950s would have been a European enclave full with like full Catholic, you know, parishes. And that would be, I've been a major Notre Dame recruiting territory for students and players and now it's mostly not Catholic, and the Catholic the Catholics that are there are Mexican, and they're Honduran, and they're from the Philippines, and they're they're not playing big time high school football. Like you need to cast a wider net, and I think Notre Dame has known this honestly since the Lou Holtz era, knowing your your team is not going to look the same as it does in 1955 because the church doesn't look that way, and parochial education in this country doesn't look that way. So if you got like Marcus Freeman, who one is Catholic by the way. Um, you've seen a picture of his, I, I say this with love, like man's got like six kids, like 
you know he's Catholic, right? And somebody who is, is I mean, he's in his, I think he's only a couple years older than I am. We might have been in Ohio State together. Um, or just, he might've been just a few years ahead of me, um, big personality and somebody that has credibility in a lot of those places that quite frankly, Brian Kelly did not. Yes. It makes a ton of sense. And it's not a surprise to me that Notre Dame is recruiting at a higher clip than they were many years with with Brian Kelly. And they're still going after Catholic kids or kids that have played at religious high schools. Um, it's just that, um, Marcus Freeman is able to connect with, with people of that age group, uh, in a different way, which is what, Lots of schools need to do. I mean, BYU isn't recruiting the same way that it was in 2001, and I think that's a not dissimilar you know, kind of situation. My gut, and I don't feel super confident about this, my gut is that Notre Dame is still independent in three years. If they're not, they're in the Big Ten. I would be blown away if they're anywhere other than that, especially if the Big Ten could say, we have USC, you can play Michigan, you can play Michigan State, you can play Purdue. And we can arrange your schedule so you can get Navy or one game in the, in the South every year. No problem. Um, but it would take a pretty significant shift, I think, in the way that the playoff is structured to make it impossible for an independent to have access. Um, one thing to kind of monitor is what happens with Notre Dame's NBC deal. Now the NBC is going to be a committed partner with the Big Ten. If the NBC is holding that primetime slot for a Big Ten game every week, that means that Notre Dame isn't going to be playing home games at night if they want to be on NBC anymore, unless they are hosting a Big Ten team, which you know they, they will uh, every season. But you know, I don't know if we can read in the tea leaves to anything there or not. But already they're looking to have a little bit less broadcast flexibility. Matt, I have to ask you, you: you're talking about Notre Dame. What were your thoughts on the uh, uniform reveal? Uh, I, I got I got to be honest. I don't I don't even think I've seen it. This is the one for the Vegas game, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 fellas, I, 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 as terrible radio as this is, I don't think I've seen it. I'm guessing because I've looked at, I've seen those Shamrock series for other games. It's probably going to look a little bit stupid um, because they usually do <laughs> for the, for those kind of games. Um, but I, I, I don't know what it looks like yet. I do know that that's going to be a surprisingly pro BYU audience in Las Vegas. I think a casual fan might not realize how many LDS people live in that, in that part of Nevada. And that's going to be close to a BYU home game. Um, despite it being a very sober one. <laughs> and no caffeinated drinks, I guess being served in the, uh, uh, in the concession I mean, stand. You're, no, you're, you're going to find that. Like, I, I don't, I think I've mentioned this before. Like one of my favorite games I ever covered was the Vegas bowl. Well, it was like four years ago when it was BYU, Utah. And I'm like, I got to go, man, this is no beer and loathing in Las Vegas. I am built to, I, I, I am the guy to write this because I'm LDS and I, I know this rivalry pretty well. And that was the first time I went to a casino floor and I saw a dude in a BYU shirt, like double fisting beers. And I'm like, that's a new one for me. Because <laughs> in, in Chicago, you just wouldn't bother wearing the BYU shirt. But it's a little bit different in Clark County, Nevada. No, you'll, you'll, you'll definitely be able to find a couple of people drinking all kinds of beverages, but it will be a different kind of crowd different kind of hostile crowd than maybe Notre Dame's used to. It sure as hell won't be Clemson. I'll tell you that. All right. Let's, let's shift the conversation to the SEC and, and that so many storylines we could start with. Obviously the new additions, Jimbo versus Saban, the new coach at LSU. Uh, what your thoughts? I mean, where do we start with this? What's, what's the best, <laughs> best one to start with? I guess the, the best one to start with. I am, I'm super fascinated about what happens in LSU. Brian Kelly's a lot of things. Gregarious and likable would not be two words I would use to necessarily describe him. Southerner, 
Definitely not. That despite man the is, accent. Despite that the accent. That man is Massachusetts as hell. <laughs> and, and you can hire Yankees to be successful in the SEC. But the expectations at LSU are, even if you're not a very good coach, you should win a national championship here eventually, right? Like Les Miles had a lot of flaws. He won a title. Ed Orgeron had even more flaws. He won a title. Nick Saban won a title. So like that's that's the baseline, right? Brian Kelly's ability to take advantage of the offensive uh, firepower on this roster already and kind of remold it into something that could be competitive very quickly, I think will be very interesting and how he functions in a extremely different recruiting environment. And I mean that not just, boy, South Louisiana is real different from the Northwest Indiana suburbs as a guy that spent time in both, but also uh, the, uh, how can I say this without getting me in trouble? The fact that uh, there are certain SEC markets where one needs to demonstrate that they are recruiting to win. Uh, and you can read into that what you will, and and the 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 kind of independent economy there, which is going to be different waters than where he was at Notre Dame. Not to say that Notre Dame wasn't fishing in those waters beforehand. Of course they were. Um, I am not optimistic that LSU is going to be that great in year one, uh, especially because you know, they had a lot of guys transfer, and there there's some roster holes in here. But in two or three years, who knows? Um, I know that there's a lot of LSU fans that are like, I don't really love this guy. And I'm and I'm going to root for him, and that that's a kind of weird dynamic, especially because Florida hired the guy from their backyard, um, who is probably going to be better, I think, in the first year or two. Long term, I don't know, but I, I I would feel better about Billy Napier's ability to win nine games first. That's a good point, and I, I guess I mean I'm going to put my tinfoil hat here on. It's some. It, do we see at some point maybe a playoff matchup with LSU versus Notre Dame, you know, it's something down the way. Okay. With the expansion with Texas and Oklahoma coming in, are are we done? Or or does the SEC say, Hey, uh, we've got some folks maybe in Florida or maybe South Carolina that might, uh, might be a good fit for us. You know, the, 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 what, what Greg Sankey has said, and because kind of vibes with what people have been telling me in private, and I believe him, is nothing the Big Ten did made the SEC feel like they have to do anything. There was no existential threat by the Big Ten moving into Los Angeles. One of the challenges for the SEC, if they wanted to expand, um, was one, the ACC schools right now all have an enormous buyout with their grant of rights agreement. And either you want to help test that in court, which could go either way, um, but if they're going to if they're going to extricate themselves from it, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars cash. This is, this is not something that you can necessarily finance. You have to open up the briefcase. And Texas couldn't even do that to get out of the big the Big Twelve. And Clemson and Florida State and uh, Miami are secretly not especially wealthy donor communities at large. In part, Florida State wasn't. I mean, that, that were a teachers' college not that long ago, and. That matters in your ability to have enough people that can drop, you know, twenty million dollar donations to extricate yourself from this. So, the, I, I don't think anything there is, is, is imminent by, by any means. Now, if enough people decide to leave the ACC, that makes enforcing, enforcing that grant of rights uh, legally dubious. All bets are off. Certainly, SC, Clemson would fit in very culturally very well with the SEC. But I don't, I don't get the impression that anybody is itching to expand just for expansion's sake. And outside of that ACC window, there's nobody else that really fits 
the cultural profile of what an SEC school is. Like, I, it would blow me away if the SEC was like, screw it, let's get Oregon. That that doesn't really seem like an SEC kind of move. Okay, so best guess with Texas and Oklahoma coming in, how how do the how does how does the conference, the East West, where do they go? How, how do you think it's going to play out? I, I would imagine just like I mean, you're talking like like organizational wise or like success wise. No, no, we could be both. I mean, just do, okay. Do you put Oklahoma in the SEC East? Do you put Texas in the SEC West? How does how do you, how do you oh, think that that lines I, up? I think the only thing you could do is throw divisions completely out the window and put everybody in one big conference and then say, all right. You were going to guarantee that you're going to play these couple of teams every year and then I'm just going to alternate everybody else. Like, this is, I think, one of the things that's the biggest problems with the SEC right now in their scheduling system is that if you're an athlete uh, at an SEC West school, you won't play many SEC East schools throughout your entire career to say nothing of actually going on campus. We got, I don't think AM's been to every campus yet, and it's been close to a decade now uh, since, since they've been in this league. You go to, you go to 16 teams, you move to eight games, the nine conference games. Uh, to you know, help out your ESPN television partners, and you have a couple protected rivalries. I, I think you can do this in a relatively balanced way. Like I would expect, Texas and Oklahoma are still going to play every year. Texas and A and M probably going to play every year. I, you know, Auburn, Alabama going to play. Every, I, I don't know exactly what the pr- the protection is going to look like everywhere, but I don't. I would be blown away if you try to jiggle this into an East West system that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Okay, all right. Uh, coaching hot seat. Let's uh, give me your thoughts on hot seat. Uh, one from the Pac-10, one from the SEC, one from the Big Ten, one from the Big Twelve. Mm, let me think about this here for a minute. I mean, the obvious one in the Big Ten is Scott Frost at Nebraska, who had to literally restructure his deal uh, to not get fired before. Um, if you would look at this just from performance reasons, it's very easy to let the guy go, especially because he's got into NCAA hot water, but he's the favored son of the school. And Trev Alberts, their athletic director, really does not want to fire him. And, and they're a strange program because they have, on the wins and losses side, been terrible. Uh, haven't made a bowl game in several years. They've, they've found a way to lose, like, clearly not up to Nebraska standards, especially because they've been still recruiting at a top 30 clip. But if you look at the advanced stats and you look at how they perform per play, they say these were eight and four caliber teams that just happened to finish five and seven or four and eight because they had the worst luck and the worst late game execution. And typically you eventually regress to a mean and you don't lose that many one score games. And so you can squint and say, this is probably closer to an eight and four team than a team that's struggling for a bowl, a bowl appearance. If they, if they, if they fail to break through this year, then yeah, you kind of have to move on and maybe you call up a, you know, Campbell at, at Iowa State or something. But, like, that's that that's the big one there. We'll have to think here for a second. On the Pac-12 side, I mean, Herm Edwards is is a miracle that he's not fired already. Like, that, that is just a really terrible university leadership from the president's side, chancellor's side, down to the AD and everything. When you've had, what, five, six assistant coaches leave, your entire roster leave, you signed a, a recruiting class that was worse than the Campbell Camels. Uh, I literally wrote about this earlier this week. Multiple FCS teams signed better recruiting classes in Arizona State because nobody thinks Herm Edwards is going to be there because it looks like this is a ripe for being nuked by the NCAA or nuked by the Pac-12 for, for breaking numerous rules. And you did that for what? To go like eight and four and like lose the Alamo Bowl or something like that? It's it's hard to look at this roster, Emory Jones notwithstanding, and see a way to win eight games anyway, especially given how difficult the top of the Pac-12 South is. And it's hard to see this ending in any other way than an unceremonious uh, you know, canning. I have to think a little bit more, though. 
off the top of my head about that. I mean, like Auburn, I don't care who the coach is. Auburn's coach is always on the hot seat. And like, if, if you literally try to have like a, a very public coup and, and completely hamstring the program's recruiting, I, you have to figure they're going to try again, especially because this was a banner year for, for, for talent in Alabama. And I don't think Auburn's going to get most of those guys uh, big in part because of, of what I just said. But I don't know if anyone else immediately off the top of my head jumps out as screaming hot seat, especially because some of those coaches are still pretty new. Matt, what school does not want any more realignment? They're happy where they are. They don't want things to blow up. Is there a school that just is, hey, kumbaya, let's all get together. Nobody else make moves. Because <laughs> they, they could be left at the dance without a partner. Yeah, I mean, that's most people, I think, in the Big 12 and the Pac-12, but especially Oregon State and, to a lesser extent, Washington State, right? Like, these are those two are programs that can't really deliver a major television market. They're both pretty rural, and the, the biggest city that they're actually closest to is not a top 30 DMV uh, for, 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 for Nielsen television sets. You don't have enormous athletic department budgets. Both of those are near the bottom of the Power Five. Um, they're not, they have dedicated fans. They're not unsuccessful. Oregon state's a great baseball program. Uh, Washington state has improved in basketball. They've been a competitive football program for a long time, but if you can't deliver recruiting territory or television sets or big budgets, and you're already in the middle of nowhere and it's not super easy to get to you, it's harder to kind of just to automatically assume that you're going to find a landing spot in, in many ways. Uh, those two schools have more in common with some of the higher end Mountain West programs than they do uh, uh, the the bigger budget, you know, a, a place like University of Washington. And you don't have state houses that are going to go to the mattresses to protect you if things fall apart. Um, I don't. I would. I hope that doesn't happen. You know, for the sake of those fan bases. But I understand why they would be nervous. Just like Baylor fans were nervous a year and a half ago when it looked like, looked like the Big Twelve might fall apart until the eleventh hour, and they recognized, hey, if this falls apart, the Pac-12 is not taking us. Like we will be part of the gentrified American Athletic Conference, and that's that's kind of how it is. I've got to ask, what do you think, or what are you hearing from my Tennessee Vols? Um, they should, boy, there's a lot to say, but what can I say on the radio? Um, they should have a pretty good football team. Uh, I, I, this is, I might be their best shot at putting a real scare in Alabama in, in a little while. They might be, I think one of the few teams that can, uh, might be, you know, hold them to single digits this year. I think Alabama is like far and away, but, uh, better than almost anyone they're going to play, but this should be a pretty, a pretty good team. I would have a little bit of worry about where they're on the line of scrimmage. And uh, a little worried about how they're going to score points as now everybody in the league has film on them, uh, given, you know, that they're running a system that I think is, is best deployed when you don't have as much talent. And I don't know how they're going to iterate on that for an encore after, after a reasonably successful team, but they'll definitely make a bowl. And I, I think it, it would be reasonable for them to have expectations higher than that, because I don't know if there's a clear cut bet the number two team in the East this year, Georgia, despite losing their entire defense um, should still be, be the overwhelming favor in that division. But do I think that Tennessee could be number two? Sure. Like I'm, do I think there's a gigantic difference between Tennessee, Florida and Kentucky? No, which is a wild thing to say out loud as somebody who grew up in the nineties when I was like, do there better is there sure is a difference between those two. And that, and that just speaks to how Florida and Kentucky and Tennessee have changed over the last decade. 
let's go to football in the Northeast. And, you know, BC is one of those programs that if conferences blow up, where's BC land? But who on the horizon? I know you shared about UConn and UMass football and that experience. Uh, is there anything up in the Northeast relevant? I mean, on the on the expansion front, probably not. I think there's some reason to be excited about Boston College football this year. Uh, Phil Jerkovic's a, a really good quarterback. You know, somebody that I'm honestly a little surprised ended up having to leave Notre Dame. I mean, I think if he was on Notre Dame's roster now, he'd be their starter. Um, Jeff Halfley is a, is a great coach, uh, somebody who was really highly regarded in the industry when he was at Ohio State, uh, has been really highly regarded as he uh, you know, has tried to rebuild things in Chestnut Hill. And the fact that they haven't had a lot of transfers, even when other people have come in with, with big NIL collective checks, is, is meaningful. So, I mean, the, the, the question here with BC, I think like it is with most programs that aren't stocked with four, uh, lots of five-star talent, is about depth. And, you know, BC's top 22 can hang with anybody, in the, almost anybody in the ACC, but a couple of guys get hurt. You might be, you might be playing a couple of buff future dentists rather than future NFL players. And that's where Miami and Florida State and Virginia Tech can beat you up a little bit. Matt, who's a stock you're buying as a college football team this year that maybe people are sleeping on? Hmm. I am... Maybe irrationally optimistic about East Carolina. And, and part of that is I'm a little biased. My mom taught there. I've spent a lot of time in Greenville. I'm, kind of, I'm always kind of hoping for that program. But uh, I think, I think they've, they've, they've finished strong uh, over the last – they got back into a bowl game after really bottoming out the past couple of years. They're in a position where they have one of the best home field advantages in the American Athletic Conference. They have done a good job not just uh, rebuilding their kind of um, – roster via the portal, but with retaining talent. I think they're a preseason like top five team in the American Athletic. Their schedule is manageable. Like I even though NC State's gonna be really good, I think they could really make them sweat in that game. Like, I mean, when I'm saying I, I'm I'm slightly bullish on ECU, I'm saying maybe they win eight games. But for a program that hasn't been in that conversation in a little while, it might surprise people to say that I, I don't I think that they're not going to be a pushover by any means. Matt, am I wrong that I'm seeing a trend of some of these ADs retiring, going to become consultants because they used to raise money for new locker rooms, new facilities, but now they're raising money for NIL deals where I think it's Texas Tech that women's basketball, every player is getting $25,000. Are ADs just going... I only have so many boosters with so many deep pockets that let me get out. You know, it, it's it. So on one hand, you are seeing people leave and you're seeing ADs leave. And I think you're seeing even more people leave below that level. Um, not just at the very junior level where, where you've always had a lot of attrition, but, but mid career individuals. And part of that is because yeah, the job has gotten much harder and the pay hasn't always gotten to that point. You see the same thing with, with coaching. I know that, that what you described there was certainly a fear among ADs a year ago. And as I've talked to people, I can't, it's, 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 I'm not saying it's never happened, but it's, it's happening less where ADs are saying that that's actually occurring. And I, I don't have the money to fill my, my, my priorities because that's going into collectives. What I'm hearing more is that the people that are donating, excuse me, big money to collectives generally weren't given to the school. It's, it's a new donor pool that's popping up. But where there has been an issue, is where it's created a substantial loss of control. 
Because if you're at a program that has a couple of collective groups that have raised like real institutional money, I'm, I mean, I'm talking like eight figures, not a couple message board dads waving the Venmo around and passing around 600 bucks, but like, you know, endowment level money. You aren't the athletic director anymore. They are um, because now they control the money um, that is, is, controls the talent acquisition, which controls the quality of your programs, which controls your ability to do anything else. And this terrifies a lot of coaches too, because they're realizing now I have a shadow general manager that isn't technically accountable to anybody. And his goals may not be aligned with my goals. They might not be aligned with the department's goals that have different constituencies. Um, and that's a problem. I, I think we said this last time when we talked, I don't think it's an accident that many of the programs right now that are most publicly extremely active in the NIL talent acquisition space, programs like Tennessee, like Texas A&M in Texas, like Miami, like USC, these programs mostly haven't won anything for the last decade. And part of the reason they haven't won anything in the last decade is because their AD and their coach and their boosters and the money people had never been able to get all on the same page, um, which creates a culture which undermines a lot of the things that you're actually trying to build. It's not an accident that Alabama is not waving dollar bills around the same way that Tennessee's, the, the dumb lawyer for Tennessee's collective is doing right now. I, I, those are, those are, those are correlated. Right. And I think ADs are looking at this and uh, looking at this and realizing what our fans are pushing us to do. And the message boards are pushing us to do is not aligned with what we know to be required for winning cultures. Is it how, if I gave you card blanche, how do you control as you say, talent acquisition, the Wild West, how are you going to control the NIL madness? It's, it's legalized paying players. How would you, what kind of rules would you come up with? I, I don't, I think there's, there's very few that would pass legal muster. I can tell you what I would do as an AD, and I can tell you what I would do as I was a U.S. Senator. If I'm an AD, and I would talk to the coaches of, of my programs and say, like, listen, you know, on some level, we can't completely control what our boosters do. Or, or the other people do. But the line that Jim Harbaugh has used, which people make fun of him for, but I think is actually fair and accurate, is we don't want to be transactional programs. We want to be transformational programs. It's not good business to, to commit six figures plus to high school kids, even if they are high four-star recruits, knowing that almost half of them will wash out and not start for contributing programs. 20-year-olds are flaky. Even extremely talented ones, they will flunk out, they'll get DUIs, they get injured, their girlfriends dump them, they want to leave. And if you commit all of that money to people, and particularly commit them to multi-year deals, and they can't leave if they really should, you are tying up resources that we need, you're producing you know, dead salary cap room, and you're also uh, really risking a locker room environment. Because the NIL marketplace right now overwhelmingly rewards either high schoolers or people in the transfer portal and under rewards established talent. And so when you hear coaches say like, I'm concerned if I have a two year returning starting right tackle, who's absolutely critical to the success of our program. And he's making, you know, 15% of what a high three star, you know, defensive back is making just because some booster wants us to move up the on three recruiting rankings. you got a problem. So, you know, I think what, what some of the, the more successful cultures are doing is saying, we want to, if we have collectives, we want to direct them to give money to people that are already on the roster. Leave their recruiting and talent evaluation to me. The school pays me $6 million to do that because I'm good at it. Not the people that sell pressure-treated lumber in suburban Dallas. You, you, you are good at writing checks. Um, 
We want to create a culture where we can tell recruits, this is a place where uh, if it's important to you, your NIL can develop and you can have opportunities, and, but you're not going to be guaranteed the house up front, um, especially because I think you're going to find this year some of these collectives are literally writing checks that their bank accounts cannot cash. So I think that's what I would do at the institutional level. Um, your ability to actually enforce that will vary from market to market. I don't know if Moses could do this at Texas A&M and get people in line. Um, at Michigan State, different kind of culture. Uh, at Minnesota, different kind of culture. Um, the other thing I would do if I was a senator, or if I was a lawmaker right now, the one law that I think would actually help would be dramatically pushing states to add agent registration laws with regulatory teeth. And, and, and by that, I mean one of, one of the underreported challenges and, and places where athletes get exploited in the current NIL market is with agents. Um, I'm sure both of you know, if you want to be an agent to represent a, a player in the NFL, you got to be NFLPA certified. And that means you probably have a law degree. If you don't have a law degree, you have a graduate degree. You've passed some kind of certification exam. And I think with the NFLPA, you also have to have years of professional negotiating experience. There is a benchmark that says, like, we're not just going to let any Yahoo off the street work with our guys. Um, the NBA, the, uh, the players union for the NBA has similar rules, not quite as strict, but, but a benchmark. There are literally no benchmarks to represent a college athlete. I could hang up this phone call right now, change my Twitter bio to say extra points, newsletter and player representation services and be an agent today and start taking calls. In fact, if I'm being honest with you, I would do a better job at it than some of the other people out there because I know more about this marketplace than people who are saying they're agents. I have literally, not exaggerating to make a yuck yuck here, literally talked to agents who were 20-year-olds 20, 20 who were representing their dorm mates or people in their class, right? And where you are seeing right now is an influx of what we used to call street agents or uncles or handlers or other people who might not have the long-term best interest of somebody at heart, push them to make rash decisions to maximize short-term financial gain, which means short-term financial gain for the agent, because that agent is not going to be around to participate in the long-term gain. And big picture, that's bad for athletes. Um, there's, there's athletes that are paying 22% agent fees to people who have no business collecting that kind of fee, pushing them in the portal when they don't want to leave. I think if you had state laws because uh, I don't think the NCAA could do this, but I think if states could say, if you want to represent a college athlete in our jurisdiction, you must have professional certification X, Y, or Z, that will help um, li trap, limit some of the more aggressive NIL craziness because that's being pushed by uh, actors, I think, with, with, with more nefarious agendas. All right. Keep the names out of it. What's the most outrageous NIL deal that has happened? Um, so this is actually a really challenging question because I have learned that getting verifiable information about these NIL deals is extremely hard. Um, I can look up what an NFL player makes in salary. Like anybody in real GM could contract some of those things, but um it's very hard on the college side, right? Like a college athlete, when they do an NIL deal, is supposed to report it to compliance. So me, being the nosy reporter that I am, I filed hundreds of open records requests for some of those compliance disclosures. And I said, block out the names. I don't care. Uh, I block out the name of the firm. I don't care. I'm, I'm looking for industry deal type and amount of money. And I wanted to know how many people at schools are doing this. Most of those records were, were, were held. So you know, it's a violation of FERPA. You can't read them. 
But then the, I talk, the, I get the compliance guy on the phone and I'd say, look, Matt, even if we could give you the records, there's barely anything to share because we only get 20% of them. Most athletes never report this stuff, even though they're supposed to. It's off the books. And the major NIL marketplaces are typically not working with collectives. So they can give you all the market data on the people that made 300 bucks shilling soda pop on Instagram, but not the gigantic collective ones. And uh, which means that the information that you hear comes from assistant coaches who may or may not be full of crap from message boards who are almost exclusively full of crap uh, from local radio hosts who are almost exclusively full of crap or from other people that have powerful incentives to make things up. So things that have kind of become college sports fan conventional wisdom, like the Jordan Addison getting $2 million to go from Pitt to USC guys, it's not true. Um, I have found that with few exceptions, when you see a gigantic number, the real number is about 20% of that. These deals are not guaranteed. Um, they, uh, probably would not pass NCAA sniffing uh, if, if any of them are actually like CC'd and sent over. I will say I have heard numbers from people that I trust that there are some college basketball players who I don't think are that good. Um, who, you know, people who are, are not even going to be on the G League's radar that are probably not even going to be on the top European League's radar. I'm talking guys that are going to play in France um, or like non-Barcelona, Spain, you know, kind of guys maybe play in Israel for a little bit. Dudes who are who who are would command double their European salary at least from the transfer market um, as basketball players. So somebody who might be like the second or third best guy at like I'm picking a school randomly here at like a Minnesota, but because they're experienced and because they can give you seven rebounds a night, and somebody will think that that will help my freshman laden like Duke team again at randomly here uh, move up. They'll, then they'll, you, you'll see somebody get 200 grand. And like, that's, that's a real thing. So, and then maybe that's not even entirely a bad thing. Cause there's a class of basketball players that are good, productive college basketball players who are not going to make a lot of money professionally, who literally will want to stay in college because they could kind of bounce around for graduate transfers and make very healthy six figure stipends, um, which is not what is reflected of the current marketplace. That seems pretty wild to me. Man, I think we just found a side hustle for you to pay for summer camp and maybe some summer camp, you know, on the beach yeah. somewhere in the Caribbean for you and the wife. So uh, just just saying, kind of kind of think about that. Okay. When I, yeah, when I quit the newsletter business, because I'm not doing extra points forever, I'm not saying I'm going to go jump on that hustle, but I'm not saying I'm not going to do it. Gotcha. gotcha. Okay. Before we get into some college basketball, let's, let's pull the crystal ball out. And uh, a couple questions, Jeff, feel free to jump in on anything you could think of. My first one is, um, who do you predict in the uh, national championship game? This year, the national championship game, honestly, I think is relatively easy to predict. I mean, I, I would, I think it's going to be Alabama, Ohio State. Alabama made the national championship game and was in, the, was in that in the fourth quarter with unquestionably a rebuilding roster, which is wild to say. They're returning almost everybody. They have a couple of questions uh, at wideout. Um, I, I want to say they have four transfers in the projected starting 22, and it's possible not all of them pan out. But does Nick Saban deserve the benefit? Excuse me, the benefit of the doubt? Yes. Um, Ohio State, I think, has the most talented returning offense in college football. Their defense was pretty bad. Their defense has been kind of bad the last two and a half years. Now they're returning. Most of their starters, and they were pretty young last year. They just changed defensive coordinators. They brought in Jim Knowles from Oklahoma State, who has a reputation for being a tactician and a teacher, which is something that Ohio State has lacked on that side of the ball. I think if they move from being bad 
to just pretty good, you know, like a top 25-ish defense rather than a top 45-ish defense, they are pretty solidly the number two team in the country. The bigger question is who are the other two playoff teams? And that's really hard because honestly, I don't see a huge difference between team three and four and team like 13 and 14 right now. Um, I think Clemson and Georgia and Oklahoma and USC and A&M and Utah all have pretty big questions. And if you were to tell me that this is the year Utah makes the playoff, sure. You want to tell me this is the year that, uh, a, you know, a, a, a Baylor sneaks in. Yeah, I, I think that's possible. I think they would probably get, get trounced pretty good by Alabama or Ohio State. But I I could see that happening. Probably not a G5 team this year because Cincinnati loses so much. But um, the three and four spots do seem pretty wide open. Next question. It's, you know, speaking of Alabama, how long does Nick Saban stay? Oh, he's going to do this until he's, until he's dead. They're literally going to have to bury him. When, when, I mean, look, he's pretty old, but he's in great health and he's excited and he's optimistic. And when, when Saban's complaining about something, uh, it, it's a threat, right? He's not actually complaining about it. This team is in is just as good structural shape as it's been in like the last six years. I, I have given up saying that he can't do this forever. Like I, I, I could definitely see him doing this for another five years, particularly if doing so means that he gets to stick it to Kirby Smart or Jimbo Fisher. Like, like I, I anybody hoping that he's he's thinking about going with Miss Terry to the lake forever <laughs> is, I think, sadly mistaken. Okay, next question: Does Urban Meyer ever coach again at the college level? Honestly, I don't. I don't think so. So here's the thing: before the Jaguars. Were there teams that would, that would have hired him? Yes. But two things have, have, have happened to – I've, I've heard ADs tell me this. have really sullied his reputation. One is um, everything at Jacksonville was an absolute tire fire. And it wasn't just that things didn't click on the field. He lost the trust of his own, of the ownership, which is you know, ADs pay attention to that stuff. It was a national embarrassment. Might have you know really set Trevor Lawrence's progression back. Um, it's one thing to be bad. It's another thing to be embarrassing. And he was embarrassing. And remember, he left Ohio State in a cloud of scandal. I mean, it, the guy was suspended for for the Zach Smith cover-up. He was in physical anguish and, like, collapsing on the sidelines because he looked like he's going to have a brain aneurysm because Maryland scored a touchdown. Um, and uh, you look at all that now, and he, he hasn't recruited in a couple of years, and all of the headlines have been bad. His wife is a real piece of work. Um, and, you know, it was embracing anti-vax stuff and is not you know, somebody that is going to be a political liability. The whole Meyer family is at this point. And he's really good at TV. So it's really easy to just keep him doing this. Um, Meyer is not somebody that's going to, like, take the Utah State job. Uh, you know, he's going to want to be somewhere that you can compete for a title. I think it's telling that Notre Dame did not even think about this, that USC went out of their way to not seriously entertain him. Texas was interested before. Um and I could see Auburn being stupid enough to kind of inter- entertain that kind of thought a little bit, but um, it's, 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 it's just, it wouldn't end well. There are other guys that have lots of baggage that I think will get other jobs. He's not one of them. I was, I was about to add, I think that the next chapter of your, your, your what if book would be urban Meyer going to the Nick Saban school of coaching rehabilitation. That would be probably the the best story of all. But okay, oh. Jeff, what are what are your what are your what else? What are your questions, Matt? Clemson has Dabo lost a step or just a blip? 
this this is this is the million dollar question because like this is the year of really trying to see how much of his culture has really stuck. I get why people like to make fun of Dabo, uh, and I had made fun of Dabo, but uh, he is somebody who I would definitely say is not he's not a fraud. He's not in, inauthentic. Like he really believes all this stuff, right? Uh, about how everything he's building in this program, and if the Dabo. Uh, culture method works and and you know the fact that people very rarely leave Clemson not just assistant coaches but players tells you that people like being around whatever it is that he's building uh, and they still got loads of talent on that roster if, if he's right about culture and you can just promote assistant coaches and analysts and move up and be successful then there's no reason to think why they can't be successful for several more years if he's wrong and the, he was propped up a little bit by uh Brett Venables and Tony Elliott and, and, and managing to find two different generational quarterback uh, talents. They don't have that anymore. Then, then uh, this will be very apparent and he's going to, and he'll have to change. And I don't think he's somebody that's very good at changing. So I, I mean, like it's a pretty manageable schedule and Clemson sucked last year and they still won 10 games. Like they're still going to have an absolutely dominant defense. And if DJ Ugalele, you know, is 70% of what people thought he was going to be in high school, They'll win the ACC, so I, I'm not I'm not willing to shovel dirt on the guy yet. But this is the chance to to collect the data that both camps really need to see what he's all about. Looking ahead, the Heisman Trophy goes to who? I, I, don't, I that's it's tough. And though I look at this and think like the way that the Heisman's voted on is, you pretty much have to be a quarterback or a running back at either a playoff contending team or a player that's going to put up just such stupid superlative numbers for a good team that there's no choice but but to, but to elevate you, right? Like an RG3 or a Lamar Jackson type, somebody who's an, an almost generational kind of guy. And uh, I don't know if there's anybody that leaps off the page in kind of that 12 to 25 ranked pl- player pool right now where you think like that will definitely happen. It's It's possible. But the easy bets would be Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud. And I, I think C.J. Stroud is probably more likely be, just because there's a, kind of a, a built-in reticence against um, repeat guys. And I imagine Ohio State's defense is going to not be so strong that C.J. is going to have to throw. He's going to have to throw in the fourth quarter uh, maybe a, a decent number of times to where he seems like the safest bet. But there really isn't that great of a pool. Um, because if you're going to pick, pick somebody like, um, you know, a, 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 like a Bijan Robinson or something, you're saying, do you think Texas is going to be playoff caliber good? I don't, I, I don't think, I don't really see how you could rationally make that argument right now. So then if he's not, then, then he has to run for 2000 yards. I don't know if Texas is going to be able to do that or, or somebody, you know, similar. I've got one more before we have some fun. First pick in the NFL draft. Ah, uh, shoot. I, I, I got to be honest, I, I, I really don't think I can tell you. And part of that is because I just don't follow the NFL. After after being in this space and ten, spending 10 hours a day on, on Saturdays, I couldn't tell you who's likely to pick number one. I, I couldn't tell you who is, uh, you know, who, what kind of players or mediocre college, but project to be great NFL players. Um, I don't know. All right, Matt, we have, now we'll, let's have some fun. We have... Uh a thought-provoking question that we all can answer. Pick a number between 1 and 63. Uh, let's go 49. Right now, at this moment, what do you want to do most? 
at this at this exact moment. Um, <laughs> figure out what I'm gonna write about for my next newsletter after I talk with you guys because I got like six stories that are that are kind of half half done. I, I don't I don't mind saying this either. Like this is like my boss knows this, this is not a state secret. I don't think I'm gonna run extra points forever. I've been writing about college football for ten years. I've been writing independently now for two years. I've learned a lot about NIL. I've learned a lot about how athletic departments function. And I've learned a lot about running my own business and about publishing. And that's made me think, you know, I, I do want to keep doing this for a while. And I've, we're building something that, that I'm really excited about. But my next adventure might not be in college sports. It might be starting a company to help other publications start. It might be, it might be an incubator there. It might be a more policy side college sports sort of thing. I might, I might stop working for eight, nine months and write another book, you know, move back to Brazil and, and finish some of these half-baked book ideas, right? Like those, those are things I'm, I'm thinking about. Uh, you know, you get through another football season or two, the business grows the way you want to, then maybe you can, you can, you can experiment a little bit more. I love it. Now for our top 25, number between one and 25, Matt. Uh, let's go 12. Here's our three fun ones. Have you ever ordered takeout to avoid doing the dishes? Guys, I'm a dad. I've got two small. What kind of question is that? <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's what we know. We uh, we could do our own podcast on dad. Yeah. Uh, let we, let he who has not done that cast the first stone, <laughs> and and we're we're gonna we're gonna have a, a very quiet podcast. I, I, I definitely have done that. Christmas or Thanksgiving? You know, I. For us, it's Christmas. And a part of that is because I've had to work near Thanksgiving for most of my professional career. Um, I also don't have a huge family in the United States. Most of my extended family is still in Brazil. Or as you might expect, Thanksgiving is not a super big thing. Um, so you're not gonna, I'm not going to have 30 people at my house or, or go over there because that's just not where my people are. But Christmas, I don't have to work as much. Right? I haven't had to cover the Hawaii Bowl in a minute. And when you've got small children... That's just a much more magical time of year. It's a great antidote for being the cynical bastard that that most reporters kind of are all the time. When you get to see the Santa letters and everything, and 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 play that out in real time, that it really is the most magical time. My last one: favorite sports movie. Hmm, that's a good one because I don't I'm I don't really love a lot of the 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 classics. Um, I I do still love the Sandlot. That's that's a it's but that's also like not a really a baseball movie. That's a coming of age movie and about childhood friendships and growing up. And I've watched that with my kids. I've watched that as an adult. It still holds up. I have found that the best sports movies tend to not really be about sports. The ones where like that's the main message. Like I don't know. I mean, other than that, like I, Major League is still funny to me. But that's also not entirely about baseball. Jeff, I'm thinking another possible podcast for Matt to come back is to talk about the perfect picana, how to cook picana, the the perfect uh, recipe for uh, was it caprina, the, the oh, drink, the Brazilian. Yeah, drink? so that that's hard because you're asking a Mormon about that. Like, look, man, like <laughs> favorite Brazilian drink? I don't know, sukaji abacaxi, baby. I don't like. I'm sure whatever else you put in there is fine. Uh, okay, um, we'll we'll stick with we'll stick with food okay, then. We'll, we'll yeah. go as asahi bowls and um, sure. Yeah, listen, you want to come back next time and I'll walk you through how I cook feijoada and 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 what and what pastéis look like at Casa de Brown. Sure, We're, I'm ha happy to do that. We could talk meat on swords. We can talk exotic fruit juices that come in boxes. We can talk about guanana. Totally fine. 
Um, <laughs> I know, but like the, uh, the, the, the mint drinks, I'm just like, I bet that tastes pretty refreshing, but I, I can't, I, I can't help you there. As always, Jeff, I, I, I learned so much. I'm, I feel so prepared for college football now. I, like you said, I, I don't have to listen to the guys, you know, in Baton Rouge and everything. I've got everything I need right now to watch college football. No, I, I love I it. So. I love yeah. I love getting my newsletter in the morning. It's the best money I've spent. It's he he doesn't charge enough. I can go tell everybody he needs to charge more. But Matt, maybe tell everybody where they can find you, get in touch with you, and all the great things you have going. You bet. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Matt Brown EP. You can shoot me an email at Matt at extrapointsmb.com. I, of course, publish Extra Points, which is a newsletter that covers off-the-field forces in college athletics, whether that's NIL, realignment, media deals, um, college sports history, policy, all, all the things that shape everything else that we just talked about. That's what that's that's what I cover. You know, I, I wrote about NIL exchanges today. My next story, I think, is going to be about Division II television rights and what Flow Sports is doing. Uh, might write about volleyball day after that. You can find all of it at extrapointsmb.com. There's a free subscription option, or you can get the full thing for just 8 bucks a month. Thank you for listening to the fifth quarter, Conversations Beyond the X and O's, with your hosts, Layson Perkins and Jeff Osterman. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on social media. Social media. Social media.